0: Sometime in
1: the early 80s, REO Speedwagon's airplane made an unannounced middle-of-the-night landing. This is my friend Kyle McLaughlin, the star of Twin Peaks. And he's telling me about how he discovered a real-life Twin Peaks in rural North Carolina, not far from where he filmed Blue Velvet. What was on the plane was copious amounts of drugs coming in from South America.
0: Supposedly, Pablo Escobar went looking for other spots, quiet, out-of-the-way places
1: to bring in his cocaine. My name is Joshua Davis, and I'm an investigative reporter. Kyle and I talk all the time about the strange things we come across. But nothing was quite as strange as what we found in Varnumtown, North Carolina.
0: There's crooked cops, brother against brother. Everyone's got a story to tell, but does the truth even exist? Welcome to Varnumtown.
1: Varnumtown is available wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: And welcome to episode three thirty eight of the True Crime All the Time Unsolved podcast. I'm Mike Ferguson, and with me, as always, is my partner in true crime, Mike Gibson. Give me, how are you? Hey, I'm doing okay, man. How About you? I'm doing well. Yeah, I had a good week. Got to see my daughters, take them to lunch at college this week. So that was really cool. That is awesome. Hey, let's go ahead and give our Patreon shout outs. We had Marsh. What's up, Marsh? Corey Thompson. Hey, Corey. Jason Workman jumped out at our highest level. Well, thank you, Jason. Lori. What's going on, Lori? Tristan McCarthy.
0: Hey, Tristan. Charles Jewell. Well, I appreciate that, Charles. Jen. There's Jen. Berlin Jones. Ah, uh, hey, Berlin. Emma's Irony. Well, I thank you, Irony.
2: Joseph Miller. What's up, Miller? EJ Holiday. Hey, EJ. Becca Holiday. What's going on, Becca? Darby. Hey, Darby. And last but not least, Emma Kale.
0: Well, thank you so much, Emma. And then if we go back into the vault. This week, we selected Sarah Striga. Well, thanks, Sarah, for hanging in there with us. Yeah, we
2: appreciate the new support, the continued support. Gibbs, right now, we have an episode out on TCAT. It's on Blake Leibel. This was an aspiring director, son of multimillionaires, who was arrested for murdering his girlfriend, who had just given birth to their daughter. And this was a... Very, very brutal murder, torture. It was very sickening. Yeah. Yeah. Very graphic. All right, buddy. Are you ready to get into this episode of true crime all the time unsolved? I am ready. We're talking about the Houston lovers lane murders on the night of August 22nd, 1990. A young couple named Cheryl Henry and Andy Atkinson parked at a remote lovers lane in Houston, Texas. Andy's abandoned car was found the next day and their bodies were found soon after Cheryl and Andy were tied up and their throats were cut. Cheryl was raped by her killer over 30 years later. The killer remains unidentified despite the DNA being connected to a rape case that occurred the same year
0: as the murders. So growing up, I used to love lover lane kind of areas, the secluded areas. I mean, I, had brothers in my house and my mom and dad. So it wasn't like you could go back there to be with your girlfriend. You know, you had to go find a little secluded spot somewhere.
2: Okay. Yeah. I thought that was going in a weird direction there when you brought your brothers into it <laughs> and, and all that. I just don't remember to be completely honest with you. There being any type of lover's lane areas around where I grew up. I just don't remember that.
0: Yeah. We definitely. We definitely. Would find places to park.
2: Yeah, I, I could say that that did occur. I just wouldn't have called them lover's lane areas. Yeah. Like I think about, you know, in the Zodiac case or the 40s and the 50s and the 60s and, and things like that. But no doubt, this was a very brutal uh, double murder. Cheryl was raped. I think, you know, what fascinates a lot of people about this case is the fact that there is DNA and that it's been connected to another cake. Yeah. So we'll get into all of that. Cheryl Lynn Henry was born on October 24th, 1967 in Florida. Garland Andrew Atkinson, who went by the nickname Andy, was born on September 6th, 1968 in North Carolina. Both Cheryl and Andy were college students who had recently started dating in the summer of 1990. At the time, Cheryl was 22 and Andy was 21.
0: Really? Not that much older than I was back then.
2: Oh, you mean in the summer of 1990? Yeah. Yeah. Not much older than uh, than I was either. Cheryl met Andy while she was home for the summer from her classes at Stephen F. Austin State University. Andy had moved to Houston from North Carolina. He graduated from Campbell University and wanted to be closer to his dad's family. Andy was an aspiring model, much like yourself back then and sometimes still today. Sometimes. But he got a job at a
0: local Gold's gym and moved in with his grandmother in Maryland. Yeah, I worked at my local gym when I was that young. The Holiday Health Boss. Is that what it was called? That's what they were called. That does not sound like a Gold's gym.
2: That sounds like some place you go to get pampered. <laughs> that sounds like where my wife goes on the weekend yeah. to get her nails done.
0: <laughs> that's what, that's where I was, man. Selling memberships at the Holiday Hill Spa.
2: Cheryl worked at a Houston strip club called Rick's Cabaret. According to the Houston Chronicle, the Chronicle didn't specify her particular role at the club. The Chronicle also reported that Andy worked a door at a club called Dream Street which was managed by his father, Garland Atkinson. So, yeah, she worked at a strip club. She could have been a dancer, but she could have been a waitress as well. Yeah, who knows? And does it matter? It does not. Andy and Cheryl had only known each other for about two weeks. So, I mean, Gibbs, their relationship was very short. But sources indicate they had strong feelings for each other. And, you know, every relationship is different. You know, some people develop very strong feelings extremely quickly.
0: Yeah. I think a lot of people run into that
2: or feelings grow over time, right? It can happen different ways for different people. Cheryl's stepsister, Crystal Craig told the Houston Chronicle that Cheryl normally didn't get worked up over boys, but she was head over heels for Andy. And you know, that's pretty telling using that phrase head over heels. Yeah.
0: That's big time, man.
2: Yeah. I mean, that's whether you want to call it in love or that's, you know, your eyes light up when you see that person, that person is all you're thinking about. That's kind of what goes through my head. When I hear the head over heels phrase, Cheryl's sister, Meredith told KHOU 11 in 2013, she thought he was amazing. Inside and out, and that he had a great smile, but his mind was wonderful too. And that's important. To have a wonderful mind. Yeah. I think it is. Now, he must have been a pretty good looking guy. Sounds like it. He was an aspiring model. You know, he's working out at Gold's gym. He was a a bouncer, so he, you know, he must have had some muscle to him. But more importantly, she was into him. And nobody that I saw really mentioned the physical aspect right? Now, maybe you could take that he was amazing inside and out. Maybe the out part is that she thought he was, you know, a good looking guy, but he had a great smile. He had a a great mind. On the night of August 22nd, 1990, Cheryl and Andy went out on a double date with Cheryl's younger sister, Shane Henry Blaine and her date. His name was not listed in any of the sources. They met at a nightclub called
0: Bayou Mama's. By you, mamas.
2: They had drinks together at the club. It seemed like Cheryl and Andy were having a great time. Shane told the Houston Chronicle, I think I said, get a room a couple of times that night. It was sort of during that exciting time of a new relationship.
0: Oh man, we've all been around people like that, right?
2: And we've talked about that time in a relationship in many episodes. I mean, you know, for some people, it can be all consuming. It's It's new, it's fresh, it's exciting. Yeah. And so they must've been all over each other for her sister to tell them multiple times,
0: get a room. Yeah. Like, Enough's enough guys. Come on.
2: Yeah. We're in a public place, yeah. you know, keep your hands to yourself, something like that, or get a room where you can be alone. Shane left the club around 11 30 PM. She told Cheryl, she loved her as she left. This was the last time she saw her sister alive. And I'm telling you, man, every time I say that phrase, especially in an unsolved case, it hits me because I can't help but think about that person. You know, in this case, it's a sister who leaves the bar. She's not thinking that something is going to go terribly wrong. Not at all. She tells her sister that she loves her, but... I'm sure there wasn't a thought in her mind that she wasn't either going to see her the next day or talk to her the next day, whether it's a sister, a mom, whoever it is, those last words,
0: they have to haunt you. Do you think you remember like the last conversation and analyze it for years to come?
2: I think forever. Yeah, I, I really do. I don't, I don't think you ever forget about it my assumption, and that's all I can do is assume because I've never been in that position would be that you would replay it over and over in your mind because who's probably not going to think about their loved one every day for the rest of their life because they still don't know what happened exactly who's responsible. That's why we're doing it on unsolved. It's true. Cheryl and Andy left the club and drove to a remote lover's lane in West Houston off Enclave Parkway near Eldridge Parkway. The Houston Chronicle described it as an undeveloped wooded area of Western Harris County where young people often went to park and kids. And I'm sure they might have done a little bit more than that, but they probably
0: didn't want to write that in the paper. Probably not, but kids got to go somewhere. That's what we always did. We found that spot. But I'm sure where you grew up,
2: because it was a little more rural, I think, than where I grew up, there were probably a lot of undeveloped wooded areas, which you could sneak off to.
0: There were some gravel driveways (laughs) or roadways.
2: I mean, I don't want to make you out to be a Lothario or you know anything like that, but.
0: (laughs) You know what? I might be a little offended if I knew what that word meant.
2: Yeah, yeah, we we can talk about it later. It's not, it's not bad though. KHOU reported that today Enclave Parkway is a well-developed business corridor. Mid-rise buildings and a parking garage now sit in the spot where the couple parked. Cheryl didn't come home that night and neither did Andy. Her family was worried about her so they reported her missing on August 23rd, 1990. Later that day, A Cisco food security guard patrolling the area found Andy's white Honda Civic abandoned in an isolated cul-de-sac in the 1300 block of Enclave Round, which was part of an undeveloped business park. He noticed that the key was still in the ignition. The seats were reclined and a cassette tape was still in the deck. Cheryl's shoes and purse were found on the floorboard. What was most concerning was the fact that the security guard saw what looked like fresh blood in the car,
0: so a lot of red flags going off,
2: yeah, I mean first and foremost, I think fresh blood if if that really is what you're seeing, that's very concerning. The second thing that would go through my mind is who just walks off and leaves their car with the keys in the ignition. I get it, sometimes you have car trouble, and you might have to walk home or walk somewhere, but you would take your keys with you. For sure you would. The guard called the police to report the discovery. The police did a computer check of the license plate and saw that it belonged to a missing person. Cheryl's family was informed that the car had been found. Her mother, Barbara, and some other family members rushed to the area, and they actually got there before the police did. It looked like Cheryl and Andy had been relaxing in the car and listening to music when they abandoned it for unknown reasons. Like we said, right? The blood was especially worrying, but so was the fact that Cheryl left her shoes and purse
0: behind. Do you think it's strange that the family got there before the police?
2: I did think it was a little strange just because you would think by the time they notified the family. They would have already been out there and secured the crime scene. Seems like you would want to do that first and foremost. Yeah. The authorities arrived in patrol cars, helicopters, and on horseback. Cadaver dogs searched the area along with officers on foot. Just before midnight on August 23rd, a cadaver dog led the police to Cheryl's body, which was found about 200 yards away from Andy's car. And it was reported, Gibbs, that the police had to hold Barbara back when Cheryl was found so that she wouldn't see the violent crime scene. And I completely understand that. You know, if if you're the family and you find out that that's your daughter, what would be your first instinct?
0: Oh, I'd want to break all barriers down and get to her yeah. as quick as I can. You just want to get over there
2: and, and maybe hold her or, you know, see her, whatever. But... It's a crime scene and this was a very violent
0: murder. Yeah. I'm thinking of that movie with uh, Sean Penn. Mystic River. Mystic River. When oh, he the movie he knows he knows it's his daughter all of a sudden, and him and his bodyguards are like phew, plowing through whoever they can to get over there. Yeah. And all the police have to grab try to them. Try yeah. to
2: hold them back. Investigators discovered that the killer had arranged Andy's golf balls and golf clubs which he stored in his trunk to create a line leading to Cheryl's body. Okay. What do you make of that? It's kind of disturbing in a weird way. Yeah. I had a couple of thoughts that kind of ran through my head, which was number one, why move the body and hide it in the woods, 200 yards away and then leave a kind of a sign or something. Yeah. To lead. Authorities to find it. If you wanted it found, why not just leave it in the car or leave it next to the car?
0: But if you think about it, did the police find the body because of this? I don't think so, because they, they were looking for a while. This was probably something that you didn't really clue in on until after you find the body and you're like, oh, yeah. Oh, I see what this is, you know? Right. And it goes together.
2: It was the cadaver dogs, right, that led them to yeah. the body. I don't know what they made of the golf club and the golf balls, but I'm sure they didn't look at it and say, oh, this is a sign from the killer. Yeah. So if we go this direction, we'll find the body. So in that vein, does that mean that the killer was maybe taunting police knowing that they would only figure it out after they, they found the body in some other
0: way? Or did the killer do that? So. When they came back later, they would, they wanted to come back later, they could find the body much easier.
2: They would remember exactly where it was. Yeah. It, it's kind of one of those mysterious um, parts of the case. Cheryl was found face down and partially hidden under a pile of old cedar fence slats. She was naked. Her clothing, which had been cut from her body, was found nearby. Her hands were bound behind her back with rope, and she was cut three times on her throat. Cheryl had also been raped and DNA evidence was collected from her body. The golf balls and golf club were not the only unusual evidence found at the scene. Investigators found four partially deflated balloons tied to a tree above Cheryl's body and a new $20 bill next to her body. They didn't know if the killer had left these behind. And if so, what did
0: it mean? It would be kind of bizarre, right? The balloons, unless again, it was some type of marking like, okay, follow the golf club and golf balls, get to that spot, look up for the deflated balloons and below that underneath the cedar planks, you're going to find the body. Now the body. we do know killers come back
2: often times to the scene of the crime or where they have left the body. Sometimes they do unspeakable things to the body, uh, later on, but you don't need a new $20 bill to help you in any way find the body. So did the killer throw down a $20 bill next to her body? And if so, for what?
0: Yeah. Why, you know,
2: is it to say, and this is, this is going to sound terrible, but I'm trying to figure out what was in this person's mind. This is what I thought she was worth, or this is how little I thought of her. You know what I'm saying, putting a a monetary value on her life, maybe something like that,
0: you know, maybe, I'm just randomly thinking here, maybe he was angry with her, maybe she was a stripper, and maybe she turned away advances,
2: and the twenty dollars was like a message, yeah, like you know, to her, even though, you know, it was after death. Yeah. You didn't want my money at the club. Okay. I see where you're I'm going. Gonna make you take the money now. And again, we're speculating, but I mean, what else can you do in some of these unsolved cases, but talk about what things could possibly mean. The search for Andy was called off because it was dark, but search teams returned in the morning. Andy's body was found after about 10 hours of searching. He was tied up to a tree. About 75 yards away from Cheryl, his throat was cut so deeply that he was nearly decapitated, according to KHOU 11.
0: So this had to be a pretty dense area, right? I mean, because they were there the day before, and he was only 75 yards away. They never found him then. So I'm guessing this had to be a pretty dense area. But I'm also thinking, we know this guy worked out. He was in decent shape. Mm Mm-hmm. For someone to get the better of him, to tie him up around a tree? What does that say about the suspect?
2: It says to me that he most likely had a gun. (laughs) That's what it says to me. Because my thought is that, you know, Andy probably would have put up a fight if it was just, you know, hand to hand combat. But when somebody has a gun and they're pointing it at you or your girlfriend or they're pointing it at, Cheryl and saying, "Hey, if you don't do what I tell you, I'm going to shoot one or both of you." He might have allowed himself to be tied to a tree so that the killer didn't shoot her. That's entirely possible. Andy still had his clothing on and he still had his watch and money on him. So, I think this clearly indicated to police that, you know, these murders weren't about robbery. The killer had been after the victims, not their possession. Detectives told Andy's father they believed Cheryl was killed first. Garland Atkinson told KHOU what investigators told him. They surmised that Andy let them tie him to a tree, and they know that the girl was killed first, which means he was tied to a tree and listened to her scream, listened to her being murdered knowing that they were going to do the same thing to him and he couldn't do anything about it. That's hard to accept. I I don't know how you live with it. I mean, a child being murdered is, is horrible, but then these details that come out that go along with it, right? The fact that he most likely had to listen to her being murdered while being tied to this tree, knowing that he was going to be killed as well. Yeah. And how horrified
0: was he? Oh, he had to be terrified. And, you know, when parents hear these facts coming out from the investigation, I, I I know you want to know, you kind of need to know, but then you wish you never knew.
2: Yeah, I get that 100%. I don't think you can live with the not knowing, but then you have to learn to live with the knowing is what I believe. Angie's list is now Angie, the home to skilled neighborhood professionals. Angie is your home for everything home, and they've made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20, Or visit angie.com. That's a n g i.com. Houston Detective Billy Belk, now retired, was one of the original investigators. Because DNA testing was so new at the time, Detective Belk had to get permission from the Houston Police Department to have the DNA lab at Baylor College of Medicine process the DNA sample taken from Cheryl's body. This sample was entered into the CODIS National Database. And we are talking about 1990
0: here. It was like infant stages, right?
2: Yeah. I mean, it was first used in what, 85? So even by 90, they were not advanced all that much in the way of DNA. In September, 1990, a $10,000 reward was offered for information leading to the arrest and indictment of the killer. Andy's father said, as quoted by the Odessa Americans, There is no reason for anyone, young or old, to be brutalized the way these two kids were. I won't be satisfied until someone is apprehended. As you can imagine, the city was shocked by the gruesome murders and wondered what kind of person would target the young, happy couple. Investigators tried to follow up on all possible leads, but months and years passed with no answers. And and it's extremely sad, but it's very common. In these unsolved cases. Yeah. And really the next big development in the case occurred 11 years later in 2001, an individual sent a letter to the Houston police department promising information in exchange for $100,000.
0: Really? $100,000.
2: I I know what happened and I'll tell it to you, but I want $100,000. So we're not talking about a good citizen here, right? This person is not coming forward to help out the investigation out of the goodness of their heart. They're looking to get paid. So what does that mean? Either they're trying to scam money or they're ultimately involved in the murder in
0: some way. Yeah. I personally know the individual and this is their way to If I tell you I need to start a new life. Yes. And this is my start my new life money.
2: The risk reward, right? There's really no reason for me to come forward voluntarily, but if you give me a $100,000, I'll risk it. This letter wasn't made public until 2004. The sender demanded money and asked the police to respond via the Houston Chronicles personal column. The writer also warned they would hire a lawyer to protect themselves. The letter was addressed to the HPD Homicide Division. In the spot for the return address, the sender wrote Cheryl Henry, Andy Atkinson. The letter reads as follows. HPD, if you want to know who killed C. Henry plus A. Atkinson, it will cost you $100,000. Reply Houston Chronicle, personal column, monday three twelve o one only a lawyer will be hired to make sure you play straight, and it was signed anonymous. The handwritten note was postmarked March first two thousand one. The police received it early that month, and I'll be honest with you, I got a little bit of zodiac vibes from from that, yeah, I did too now this person's not sending you know, a puzzle to be un- unscrambled or a code to be deciphered. But the Zodiac did do some things, I think, you know, reply through the personal columns, things like that. But I don't know. I Maybe it's just because anytime somebody sends a letter like this to the police or a newspaper, it gives me some Zodiac vibes,
0: but you can say lover lane type of killing. Well, that's true too. You know, this letter, is it kind of a copycat?
2: Well, that's a great point without publicizing it. The police did respond in the Houston Chronicles classified section. Their ad read, we do want to know what you know about Henry Atkinson. They also provided a phone number so that the sender or a lawyer could contact them with directions on playing straight. Detective Belk told the Houston Chronicle that over the years, they had received calls about the case, especially around the anniversary or whenever new articles were released, but he thought the timing of the letter was odd. And you would have to say it is pretty odd, right? It was sent over 10 years after the murders, during a period when the case wasn't really getting any publicity at all. The most recent story had been published a couple weeks after the 10-year anniversary on September
0: 30th, 2000. So why all of a sudden does this individual decide to send a letter? It does seem like such strange timing.
2: 10 years have gone by. You would have thought that if this person had information, thought they could get money, they would have tried to get it sooner. But you can understand why the Houston police were interested in the note, right? They were at a dead end in the case, but they chose not to publicize it to see if they got a response to their classified ad. No one ever contacted them regarding the note. And the Houston police believe whoever sent the note does not intend to reach out to them. So just toying with them? Maybe. Well, what else could it be? Either it was a hoax. Yeah. Yeah. And you were just playing around with the police or you really did know something. And then after you sent it, the idea didn't seem so great because you couldn't figure out how you were not going to be known how, you know, the police were going to figure out who it was. Sure. we got to pay somebody. So maybe they just thought about it and said, no, it's just not going to work. So I'm not going to respond. Yeah. But I kind of lean towards the, the first the the hoax because why wait ten years well somebody probably saw an article right about the ten year anniversary and thought now eh, I'll either play with police or maybe I'll just take it and see how far it goes
0: see what I can do with this maybe
2: they'll they'll do a a drop of money somewhere and I'll get a hundred thousand dollars
0: I mean there is the small chance that maybe this person knew the person that did this and maybe he Maybe they died.
2: I thought that as well as to the reason why they waited the 10 years. Yeah. Maybe they waited until the person died, but then, you know, why not follow up on Exactly. That? If you really could get $100,000 and you weren't the murderer and you could get a lawyer to work out the details to where you wouldn't be charged with anything, maybe they found out that wasn't possible.
0: Or maybe it was the murderer that was going to die soon. And said, you know, if I can get some money from my family, I'll do this. And maybe during the period of time waiting for the police to respond, that person expired. Yeah, Maybe. (laughs) I mean, you could come up with all different bizarre scenarios. There's
2: a lot of different um, avenues to, to consider. They chose to release the note in 2004 in hopes that someone would read it and recognize the handwriting, the language used, or other information from the note. Detective Belk acknowledged the note could be a hoax, but he questioned what kind of reward the writer would get from sending it. He emphasized to the Houston Chronicle that they followed up on any and all leads. Well, I always have that same question. What reward do some of these people get out of, you know, making crank phone calls to the families of victims? Yeah. Um, Sending letters to the authorities or, or newspapers If they're not the killer,
0: I still don't know the answer. I don't either. Some thrill, some sick jollies that they get. I mean, in some cases they're derailing the investigation. Sure. Other times they're just bringing more heartache to the family members.
2: Well, I, I would argue that probably in all cases they're doing that last part. Yeah. Because you're giving, whether they believe it or not, some false sense of hope. In the first months of the investigation, the police identified several potential suspects, but they were all eliminated through DNA testing. However, the Houston Chronicle reported that the Houston PD DNA lab experienced several problems in 2002, which led to the closure of the lab. Hundreds of samples
0: were then retested. Yeah, you hate to hear that, right? That the first round may have not went the way it should have. Yeah. You don't, you don't like to hear that. I
2: also wonder because it was still a fairly new technology. How good was the testing? How good, you know, were the samples derived? I I don't know. I just wonder how many cases went unsolved, even with DNA, just because they they weren't great at it or they didn't know someone didn't know what they were doing and they weren't doing it correct. Detective Belk told the Chronicle he was confident in the work done in the Lover's Lane case because the DNA was tested by Dr. C. Thomas Kasky, a renowned researcher. So I'm assuming that was in the retest. (laughs) The DNA sample was later sent to the Texas Department of Public Safety for comparison to Angel Resendez, a convicted serial killer, but his DNA wasn't a match either. Resendez was a Mexican-born serial killer who utilized the railroad system to seek farm work in the Midwest and the South. He committed murders across the country. It's believed that he killed at least nine, but possibly up to 23 people. The murders involved beatings, shootings, rape, and strangulations. Several cases took place in Texas, and some of the victims were close in age to Cheryl Henry and Andy Atkinson.
0: Yeah, that guy was a real monster. Yeah,
2: he was a monster. But this is something that you see in a lot of cases, right? You have a known monster who was operating, let's say, around the area of your unsolved case. Well, you definitely want to see if that DNA is a match to that person. He's a killer. Is it out of the question that he could have killed these two people? No, but he wasn't a match. He was arrested in July, 1999 in El Paso, Texas. He was executed in June, 2006. Investigators likely wanted to compare his DNA to the DNA from the crime scene because he traveled so often and he killed people in Texas. He was violent with women and Cheryl Henry was murdered in an especially violent manner. In November, 2004, detective Billy Belk and some of Cheryl's family met with Houston police chief Harold hurt hurt approved independent retesting of all DNA samples taken from possible suspects who were originally eliminated by the HPD lab. I think that's a good move. Ah, oh, yeah. I think it's a great move because even if you're talking about 2004, right. Advancements have been made. Yeah. DNA testing has gotten better. Let's make sure we didn't miss anything. In 2007, DNA evidence from the semen found in Cheryl's body matched DNA collected in the unsolved rape of a Houston exotic dancer.
0: So there's got to be some hope here.
2: Well, I think on the part of police and the family as well. Absolutely. So we have a match, a DNA match to the semen found in Cheryl's body. Yeah. You know the thought all along was that most likely whoever left that semen was the killer.
0: I can certainly see why that would be the prevailing theory. A
2: woman was raped in June, 1990, just two months before the murders. She wasn't interviewed by the detectives working the lover's lane case for many years. She was 30 years old when she was raped at the time of her interview. She was 48 and working as a realtor. This connection led investigators to consider the possibility that the killer frequented or worked at local strip clubs or nightclubs and that perhaps he saw Cheryl and Andy at Bayou Mamas and followed them. The victim was working at Gigi's nightclub in Houston. She left work around 2 a.m. on June 20th, 1990 and went to her boyfriend's house in Northwest Houston. Her boyfriend, a pilot was traveling at that time She ate dinner alone in the living room. When she walked upstairs towards the bedroom, a man came out from the bedroom door holding a long barreled handgun in his hand. He asked her where Randy, her boyfriend was. He claimed that Randy owed him money. The man then attacked her. He stole $250 from her purse, bound her hands with duct tape, duct taped her eyes and mouth, threw her on the bed, and put a bag or pillowcase over her head. He cocked and uncocked the gun, repeatedly to taunt her as he
0: raped her. So a real son of a bitch.
2: Yeah, he's already committing an unspeakable act. But then, you know, taunting this victim on top of it by, you know, acting or playing around with the gun as though he's going to shoot her. Detective Michael Miller told the Houston Chronicle, he became very vulgar with her while he was raping her. And he told her she wasn't very observant that he had a military uniform, which was probably him trying to throw her off the fact that he might've had a security guard uniform. And I had to chew on that one for a little bit. Why would this man point out that he was wearing a military uniform? If he was really in the military, that would be idiotic.
0: Yeah, but I think maybe the detective was on to something here that he probably realized she seen the uniform in detail or was worried about it and thought, okay, I need to feed her some information here. And if I can get her to believe it's a military uniform, maybe she'll stick with that. Maybe he was worried it was going to be too easy for the police to find him if he worked for a local security guard company versus working with the government and the military.
2: Yeah. I I mean, I, I see a couple different scenarios there, but I don't know. At first it really, it was really strange. He then told her to lie on the floor and not move saying he might be in the house for five minutes or an hour. He disconnected her phone and put the receiver under the mattress before he left. Although he was wearing a stocking over his head, she was able to provide a detailed description of the rapist. She described him as a white male, late twenties to mid thirties, six feet tall, 180 pounds, black hair with an olive complexion. He possibly had a mustache. He was wearing black gloves, a dark shirt and dark pants, which was possibly a uniform. He had a very forceful military type stance. So the first thing that kind of jumped out at me was Black gloves, a dark shirt, and dark pants. That does not scream out military uniform to me. No, me neither. Now, could it be a security guard uniform? Possibly, but it doesn't sound like it just sounds like a person who's wearing dark clothing.
0: Trying not to be detective. Trying not to be. yeah, Yeah. Doesn't want anybody to see him in the night.
2: Sure. So then maybe we go back and the. Hey, I'm wearing a military uniform. Was just to put police on the trail of looking into people solely who were in the the military. I, I don't know. DNA was collected in her case, but it wasn't tested for 17 years.
0: Yeah, that's a long time.
2: It is a long time, and you and I have talked in many episodes about the backlog that exists. You know, even today how expensive it is to test and kind of what order they, they go in, but you hate to hear it just, you know, for the mere fact that if we could get to the point where, you know, everything's being tested quicker, obviously would help solve more cases. There's, there's no doubt about that. The DNA connection to the lover's lane case was not discovered until the Harris County Sheriff's office sent a backlog of, unsolved rape kits to be processed at the medical examiner's office. The medical examiner developed DNA profiles and submitted them to CODIS. In October, 2007, CODIS registered a match with the rape kit from June, 1990. The victim was located in Galveston County and re-interviewed. Interestingly, she revealed that she had worked for Andy Atkinson's father at one point.
0: That's pretty interesting.
2: Yeah. It's such a strange connection. The police wondered if perhaps the killer worked for Garland Atkinson, and that was how he knew Andy and Cheryl, or if it was all just a coincidence. And, you know, my thought is, could it be a coincidence? Sure. Coincidences happen, but I don't know. It seems too much in this case to be a coincidence. You know, we didn't talk about it, but I I also wondered how this person knew her boyfriend's name. You know, if you remember, he asked her where he was, said that he owed him money. Now, could he have seen it on a phone bill? I mean, there are a number of ways.
0: Possibility.
2: But it does also make you think that maybe he knew more about her. It wasn't just a stranger-like encounter. The victim helped the Houston police department create a sketch of what her attacker looked like in 1990 and an age progressed sketch in 2008. The composite sketch of the suspect was released to the public on May 16, 2008.
0: I think it'd be really hard to give a description of something that happened back then, but it also could have been ingrained in her mind. So.
2: I, I think it would be. I think if you went through that, such a terrible ordeal, that picture of the person who did that to you, I think it would be seared into your memory. Now, what I think would be really hard is for people, what, 18 years later to look at it and say, Oh yeah, I know that person. Cause they are not, they may not remember unless it was a very, very good friend or a boyfriend or, or something like that. The DNA remains in the national database but there is still no match. In 2013, the victim did an interview with KHOU11. They kept her identity private. She said she thought the rape was possibly connected to her experience with the local moving company because one of the movers threatened her life. And that's an interesting kind of tidbit too. And maybe that ties in to how this person knew what her boyfriend's name was. Yeah. I don't know. It's true. This DNA connection was a significant break in the case, but with no match, the killer can be arrested and charged. And it's something that you and I talk about quite a bit, right? DNA is amazing. The technology is unbelievable. Oh, what it's done over the last few years. Sure. It's getting better every day. It seems like but the mere fact alone that you have DNA that you believe belongs to the killer doesn't always solve a case, right? If, if you can't match it in a database or this person's DNA profile is just nowhere to be found, you're not going to get a hit. So unless you get a viable suspect and can match you know, their DNA that way, the DNA doesn't mean a whole lot right now. Now that could change, right? As technology changes or new information comes in. Yeah. Detective Billy Belk now retired, told KHOU 11 about his theory on what happened to Cheryl and Andy in 2013. He said, sometimes I think they were targeted. Cheryl was tied up more than Andy was, even though he was tied to a tree. She put up a fight. Sometimes I wonder if there are two or three suspects, you know, and that could go back to your earlier question. You know, this, this was uh, a guy who was in pretty good shape, right? Andy. And could one person have carried this out? Absolutely. If they had a gun, that, that could have been the case, but you could also see where it could have been two or three people. Now the issue there is they only have DNA from one person. But I think that alone doesn't eliminate the fact of there being more people involved.
0: Yeah, there definitely could be more.
2: He also added that DNA from at least 25 people had been compared to the crime scene DNA, but all the potential suspects had been ruled out. So that's kind of what we talked about, right? They're not getting matches in any of the databases, but they have compared the DNA against at least 25 people at this point back in 2013. So these were persons of interest, potential suspects, whatever they were, and they just didn't match.
0: That's a lot of leads though.
2: KHOU 11 reported on an FBI profile that stated that the suspect may have known one or both victims that he was close to their age and that he had above average intelligence but was a low achiever. He may have been interviewed by the police at one time. The profile also noted that the covering of Cheryl's body indicated a prior personal relationship and the suspect may not have intentionally killed Andy. And, you know, the covering of the body, it's something we didn't touch on. Um, We did mention that she was covered, but we didn't talk about the significance of it. And It crops up in many cases, and normally that is the first thing that police kind of go to. Why would a person cover the body? Well, it it sometimes means that they had a prior relationship or they knew this person.
0: In this case, or maybe he was just trying to hide the body. I mean, with cedar planks and things like that. But that alone,
2: wouldn't that have been enough? Also then why the golf clubs? Why the balloons? Right. Why the you know the $20 bill? The $20 bill, but again, covering the body doesn't always mean that you cared for that person or you had a
0: prior relationship, but sometimes it does. I mean, the problem with that profile for me is the word may have, may have. May
2: well, have. but that's all they can do. Yeah. Right, a profile is the best estimation. Yeah. Of what they, you know, believe this killer is like, they can't be certain, but they're not not that good.
0: I just don't know if I'm walking away knowing anything more than I didn't already think.
2: Well, I I don't know that I often look at or read an FBI profile and think, oh, I would have never thought that. Because very often it's kind of, I don't want to say self-evident, but it's things that just make total sense. The part that I wasn't completely sure that I understood is the suspect may not have intentionally killed Andy. What does that mean? That really Cheryl was the target all along?
0: And he was just in the way.
2: Yeah. I mean, you almost like collateral damage or I hate to use that phrase, but, or do they mean that they meant to tie him up, but only so that they could do what they wanted to do to Cheryl. And that's why he wasn't tied as tightly. They thought maybe he would get loose and, and live, but then they sliced his neck so deeply that he was nearly decapitated. Yeah. So how was that accidental? I I just didn't understand that part.
0: I'm thinking they were just trying to say he was
2: at the wrong place at the wrong time
0: and not not the target.
2: Yes. Yes. If that's what they're saying, okay, maybe I get that. In 2017, KHOU 11 reported that investigators were seeking to use familial DNA to identify the killer, but as far as the public knows, they have still not gotten a match. And this is probably their best option at at this point. Now, this was, what, six years ago that they reported this? It is this familial DNA genetic genealogy type stuff that has really exploded over the last two or three years. When you're unable to get a match of the DNA itself in any of the databases, well, then you go the route of trying to identify family members. Yeah. You know, the family tree. Can you get a match that way? And then whittle it down to the person who actually matches that DNA. And again, we don't know how much work they've done on that. A lot of times that comes down to resources, money, time. It all has a,
0: It all plays a factor.
2: It all does. It, it really does. I mean, in a vacuum, if you could work on everything, right? Send every untested sample to be tested
0: the police would be able to solve a lot of cases. Oh, for sure. Maybe one of these people that won, won the uh, $1.8 billion lotteries can do, donate some money to all these labs and get some of these uh, kits tested.
2: Yeah, and a lot of people have donated money, and it, and it really is a good thing. Currently, the Houston Police Department Cold Case Squad is in charge of the Lover's Lane case. The Cold Case Squad was established in 2004 and works on hundreds of unsolved cases. If you have any information about the murders of Cheryl Henry and Andy Atkinson, you can contact the Houston Police Department at 713 308 3618 or Crime Stoppers at 713 222 TIPS. It's been 33 years since Cheryl and Andy were murdered. They were both young. And as we often talk about, when we discuss victims, you know, they had all the potential in the world and they had their lives ahead of them. We have no idea what they would have gone on to do. What we do know is that they spent their final moments in fear and pain at the hands of an unknown killer, possibly more than one killer. According to investigators, Andy was forced to see or hear the rape and murder of his girlfriend before he was killed.
0: And how difficult would that have to be?
2: It's unimaginable. Really, for me, all of the victims that we've talked about in this case, that, that stuff is unimaginable. As we've seen in other cases, a person willing to commit such heinous crimes will most likely do it again. And, you know, I think this has led to fears that the suspect in this case could have raped or murdered more people. And I think that's a, it's a very real possibility. I'm of the mindset that more often than not, these type of individuals who are able to carry out what we talked about. Yeah. That's not a one-time thing. No. I just wholeheartedly believe that more often than not, they're going to keep doing it.
0: Yeah. something they're, they're going to repeat for sure.
2: And whether this person got away with it, died. At some point moved, moved and committed similar acts and was never caught. Who knows? But, uh, it's a rough one. No doubt about it, but that's it for our episode on the Houston lovers lane unsolved murders. we got some voicemails. Gibbs. You want to check those out?
0: Yeah, it's here. Hey, Mike and Gibby.
1: Um, I listen to your show all the time and, uh, I'm in Kansas and I uh, wanted to know if you could possibly um, cover the Patricia Newsom case. She was just recently identified, and she'd been missing since the early '70s. I think last seen uh, leaving a boarding school, but there's doubts about that. Anyway, um, since it's uh, since she has been identified and she was found uh, found in gagged, so it would be a crime. Apparently now they're sure. Another case, I uh, wrote you about this a while back, but um, there was a housewife missing from the early 60s. Her name was Joan Risch, R-I-S-C-H. I believe it was October 28th, 1961, from Lincoln, Massachusetts. And there's a lot out there on her case. Um, there have even been a couple, two or three books written on it, and there's one book that's just kind of uh, difficult. It has police uh, notes in it, but it's difficult to read. But there's a second book that came out that's more thorough, better written. And I believe the guy actually does a good uh, job of maybe solving the case in the book. But anyway, I just wondered if you guys would ever consider, especially um, covering the latest Patricia Newsom and then Joan Risch. Thanks. Bye. All
2: right. Yeah. Appreciate the voicemail. We'll definitely look into both those. Sounds like the second one for sure would have enough information yeah, does. for an episode. The the patrician Newsom we'd have to dive into and see if there's enough yet out there to uh, craft an entire episode.
1: Please Mikey Gibby, love the podcast. I was just finishing up uh, True Crime All the Time Unsolved and I was listening to the episode about Brian Kletcha and I didn't even realize that this case happened in the town where I lived and I actually lived two minutes away from where Brian Kletcher lived when he disappeared. I just drove by the house because I was doing an Uber Eats delivery. And I just can't even believe that something like that happened. And I didn't even hear about it on the news when it did happen. But anyway, like I said, love your podcast. Love you guys. Team Gibby 4L. All
2: right. Love the voicemail. Thank you so much. We hear that all the time. Team Um, Gibby? No, we do hear Team Gibby a lot. No, what I hear is people saying you know, this crime occurred where I live and it's a small town or it, it occurred very close to me and I never heard about it. And, you know, for whatever reason, maybe people don't watch the news a lot or at that point in time they weren't watching the news
0: busy in their own lives,
2: busy in their own lives. But it's strange to people. And I get it. When you drive by a house or a store where some horrific murder happened and you're like okay this is like 3 miles from my house yeah that's a, that's a strange feeling
0: it really is
2: or i didn't know it but i drive by this place every day so but we appreciate the voicemail that's it buddy for another episode of true crime all the time unsolved so for mike and gibby stay safe and keep your own time ticking
1: crime on pluto tv unravel the mysteries with forensic files and 48 hours investigate crimes with dateline 24 7 and unsolved mysteries with thousands of free crime movies and tv shows pluto tv is the true home of crime download the pluto tv app on all your favorite devices and start streaming true crime on live channels and on demand pluto tv stream now pay never